This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of February 7th through 11th. And uh, we have Maya Bialik hosting. And uh, the Jeopardy! College Tournament uh, is running concurrently this week. That's right. In prime time. Uh-huh. But here today on this year episode, we are just talking about regular old Jeopardy. That's right. But before we get into that, uh, we, we did like a personal check-in last week. So, hey, Kyle, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing okay. At this very moment, I am fighting off a sinus headache. So, listeners, if I sound a little stuffy, that's why. Uh, other than that, I'm doing all right. We're getting some snow out here in Colorado. So that's nice. Yeah. How are you, Emily? I'm all right. My kids don't listen to this podcast. Still, I don't think I should be too, too explicit, just in case. Uh, but we are gearing up, and I will not be on the podcast next week. We're working on finding somebody to step in for me, um, because we will be away on vacation. We are going to uh, what I've codenamed the place with <laughs> the guy with the ears. Leonard Nimoy? <laughs> yes, <laughs> that guy with the ears. Yeah, the, you know, you know the place yeah. in the in the southern United States with the with the guy with the ears and the uh the castle and the characters and all of that kind of stuff. So, very exciting. I'm pretty excited, honestly. Yeah. So, uh, I'll I'll be away for uh from the podcast for a couple of weeks, but I'm I'm pretty thrilled, honestly. I I hope it's great. Yeah. I'm sure it will be. Yeah. Anyway, should we talk about Jeopardy? Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right. So Monday, February 7th, we have the contestants Jennifer Cronenberger, a social worker from Metairie, Louisiana, Lawrence Long, a nursing student and stay-at-home uncle from East Bend, North Carolina, and Emma Salzberg, a consultant from Brooklyn, New York, whose three-day cash winnings total $54,199. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, The Wrath of Khan, Air, Mixed Bags, the Word Series, and then to the Opera House. Pop culture, East and West. East and West are in quotation marks. Each correct response will have one of those words. They just kind of rode the struggle bus this round. Yeah, not a strong round for anybody, really. Yeah, by the end, the combined score of all three contestants was about a third of the total money on the board at the beginning. Yeah, and there were some tricky clues. Oh, yeah, for sure. So in that uh, the word series category, the the sort of gimmick of the round was that they were going to give you the beginning of what should be like maybe a familiar phrase or quote or something. Mm-hmm. And you need to remember sort of the exact phrase and, and you know, provide the rest uh at the 800 dollars level the clue was henry trout of the diamond match company came up with this forward phrase that begins with closed cover printed billions of times and uh, emma tried what is insert tab lawrence tried what is strike match the correct response here is before striking you know like sure yes that's the phrase closed cover before striking like once i heard it i was like oh yeah that's the answer you know but like a lot of this I felt like there were a lot of clues where it was hard to like 
pull the exact wording right or to know to know quite what they were asking for yeah all right daily double number one is in the and then to the opera house category at the thousand dollar level it's pick number 13 and lawrence finds it he is at 2000 m is at 2400 jennifer is at 800 and he wagers it all and gets the clue this Po River City's Santa Sindone Chapel houses a famous linen. There's great opera at its Teatro Reggio. And he guesses what is Rome, but that is Turin, making reference to the Shroud of Turin. Mm. And is Rome on the Po? Rome's on the Tiber. Does the Po also go there? I, I don't know my rivers well enough. You know, I have no idea. I even did a deep dive on rivers and I've forgotten that. Anyway... Mm. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Emma is at 3,200, Lawrence has gotten himself back to 1,600, and Jennifer is at 1,200. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, angels and demons and insurance agents, photographers, international airlines, words with numbers in them, pros, and can, as in the city in hmm. France. You know what I will say about photographers is that although photography is a pretty, you know, wide-ranging, you know, art and practice, and there's a lot to learn there. In terms of photographers, you need to know for Jeopardy, like, you could bang that out in 10 minutes. Yeah. Y you could you could spend 10 minutes learning photographers, and I think you would know every photographer whose name you need to know for Jeopardy purposes. Yeah, because Brady was in there. Uh, Ma Matthew Brady, right? Yeah, Matthew Brady. Matthew Brady. Probably Annie Leibovitz is a name you need to know. Is she in? Right. Ansel Adams, of course. Yep. Daguerre is a name to know. Mm -hmm. For Daguerreotype, yeah. Yep. Uh, we've named most of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. If you're if you're looking to, like, cover a topic for Jeopardy purposes, that is, that is a very manageable one. Yeah, it's a handful. When I was prepping for Jeopardy, I kind of liked finding those that kind of topic where it was like, there are only a few names that I'm expected to know. So, like, let's go for it. You know, like. Yeah, it can be really daunting to be like, all right, I'm going to learn all the presidents now. Mm-hmm. When it's like, all right, there are five photographers that I need to remember. It's not likely that choreographers are going to come up. But if they do, there's only like three or four right. that that Jeopardy's going to ask about, you know. And so it's nice to find those like little mini lists where you where you can be like, you know what, I'm just going to learn everything that Jeopardy thinks I need to know right. about this. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number two is in the can category at the $1,200 level. And Lawrence finds it at the fourth pick. He has 3600 at this point. Emma's right behind him at 3200 jennifer's at 1200 he makes it a true daily double and gets the clue trees like those seen here on the promenade de la croisette inspired this name of Cannes' top prize first awarded in 1955 and he gets that one correct it's the palm door yes can was one of my correct responses in my one jeopardy game oh that's right indeed it was mm-hmm uh, Daily Double number three is in the pros category at the $800 level. Pick number 12, and Emma finds it. She's up to 8800 which is tied with Lawrence, and Jennifer is still back at 800 uh, And she wagers 4000 Gets the clue. Milan Kundera wrote The Unbearable Lightness of Being in this language. 
but later started writing novels in French. And uh, she guesses what is Hungarian, but she is a little bit south. It is Czech. Mm-hmm. So she drops back. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, uh, Lawrence is at 14,800, Emma's at 11,600, Jennifer's at 5,600, and our final Jeopardy category is Toys and Games. And the clue is, its co-creator said adding an L to the end of the first word in the original title of this board game invented in 1979, quote, made it. Uh, Jennifer does not come up with anything. She just has what is question mark. She's wagered 5,000. The drops are down to 600. Emma also didn't come up with anything. She wrote what is the and got stuck there. She's wagered 2,000. So that drops her to 9,600. Lawrence has the correct response. He has, what is trivial pursuit? Jeopardy's getting, it's not self-referential. But it's pretty close. It feels a little meta. Yeah. And he's wagered 8,401. That's a cover bet. That brings him up to 23,201 and makes him our new champion going into Tuesday. That's right. Uh, So on Tuesday, we have the contestants... Andres Quijano, a student at Cornell University, originally from San Juan, Puerto Rico. Christy Valerio, an executive assistant from Norristown, Pennsylvania. And Lawrence Long, a nursing student and stay-at-home uncle from East Bend, North Carolina, who just won $23,201. And man, that stay-at-home uncle. That's great. That's so cool. Yeah. That has gained a lot of traction on the on the interwebs, which is, which mm-hmm. is awesome. Uh, we have the Jeopardy round categories, a confrontation of biblical proportions, the last thousand years, around the USA, cooking aids, the song title pronoun, and two syllable words. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a really sad two specific answer in the biblical proportions category at the $800 level. He tells Moses, I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. But seeing as how that appears in a book called Exodus, uh, and Andres rang in and said, who is Ramses the third? It's just Pharaoh. They're just looking for Pharaoh. Yep. Because uh, was that Ramses the second or was Ramses the second with Joseph? Um, or was he at a different time? I remember Ramses the second being important. And I thought he was one of the biblical pharaohs, but could be wrong. Ramses the second is kind of the one that is thought to be the Moses one, the Exodus one. But it's not necessarily known for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I would have to, I would have to delve into it a little bit more, but like, sure. I don't think that he's named. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure he's not named in the Bible. It would have to be cross-referenced to other, other documentation. Yeah. And I think getting, the dates that specific i think you will always be relying on too much speculation i think to to definitively say it is it's this pharaoh yeah but yeah ramses the second is kind of the the one that is thought of as the the exodus pharaoh right daily double number one is in the last thousand years category at the thousand dollar level and lawrence finds it at the seventh pick he has 1,200 to Crystal's 2,000 and Andre's zero. He wagers 1,000 and gets the clue. In November 1853, Russia destroyed Turkey's fleet in the Black Sea. France and Britain 
came to Turkey's aid in this war. And he says the Crimean War. What is the Crimean War? And that is correct. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, or single Jeopardy, as, <laughs> as, <laughs> as Mayim has infuriated the internet by calling it. But honestly, like, it's, not, it's yeah. fine. It's fine. Yeah. That parlance is used by many people who are enthusiastic about Jeopardy. It's fine. Yeah. At the end of the single Jeopardy round, Crystal's in the lead with 7,000. Lawrence is at 5,800. Andre's in the red at negative 200. And we have the double Jeopardy categories. Read the room, South American capitals, his big paint sale, connect for just Z movie for you. That's uh, with Z in quotation marks. And what acute accent uh, each correct response response contains an e with an acute accent mm-hmm. uh acute is the one that goes like uphill what's the other one uh grave mm. i don't know how uh, in french in french it's grave grave it's just grave 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 yeah gotcha yeah it's a it's a grave accent okay. that's the one that goes downhill they did not do great in that connect four category they only got one of them. Yeah. Um, for Notre Dame. Notre Dame. For Notre Dame. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a clear distinction. Harry Stoljer, Jim Crowley, Don Miller, Elmer Layden. Lawrence got that. Those are the four horsemen, which is a fun nickname. But they missed Inky, Blinky, Pinky, and Clyde. Uh, Christy guessed what are the aliens from Pac-Man and nobody else tried anything. Maybe because they thought if they were thinking, oh, that's from Pac-Man and she was told no, maybe that threw them off. But those are ghosts. They're not mm-hmm. aliens, they're ghosts. Yeah. Maybe they're ghosts of aliens, but we don't, that's not clear. Mm-hmm. I did not know the Catholicism one at the $1,600 level. I had a guess, but I don't know if it was a, would have been precise enough. Uh, the clue at 1600 was in Catholicism, prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance. Those are the cardinal virtues. And I, I didn't, I didn't remember that they were called the cardinal virtues. I was, I was thinking like some, like, well, it's like, well, they're virtues. Like what's that set of four though? Mm-hmm. Uh, Daily double number two is in the South American capitals category at pick number four. Andres finds it. Uh, he is only at 200. He is out of the red. So that's good. Lawrence is at 6,200 and Chris, have I been saying Christy? It's crystal. Oh no. Uh Oh, I'm going to apologize to crystal. My, my not super clear vision was see was reading crystal as christy and i apologize for doing that so uh, i will do my best to get your name correct for the rest of the episode anyway lawrence is at 6200 crystal is at 7000 and uh andres wagers a thousand when he could have wagered two but i mean he's been skirting around the red anyway maybe he was feeling a bit gun shy and uh he gets the clue guyana's capital was founded in 1781 and named for him a far-off king at the time uh and he misses the what the question was asking for, and he says, what is Georgetown, which is the capital, mm-hmm. but they were looking for the king, who is George, yep. George III. Mm-hmm. Just, just heartbreaking for Andres in this game. Yeah. And Crystal finds uh, Daily Double number three, about five clues after that. Uh, pick number nine at the $1,600 level of Read the Room. She's at 8200 Lawrence is at 6,600. Uh, Andres is at negative 2,800. She wagers 1,200. 
and gets the clue. Biography.com reports Frank Case, this hotel's savvy manager, soon moved the group to a round table in the Rose Room. She doesn't come up with anything they're looking for, the Algonquin. Mm-hmm. The Algonquin round, round table. table. Uh, so she also drops down. So at the end of Double Jeopardy, Lawrence is at tw- 10,200. Crystal is at 10,600. And Andres is back in the re- or back in the positive at 800, which is nice to see. Gets the, mm-hmm. the category 20th century fiction. And the clue, the author's foreword to this novel says, When I read it now, I feel myself back again on the steamer from Aswan to Wadi Halfa. Uh, Andres wrote, What is 1001 Arabian Nights? That is incorrect. That, that, mm. I think that's much older um, than steamers. And he wagered $7.99. Lawrence got it correct with, What is Death on the Nile? Now that's oddly coincidental to the recent movie. Uh-huh. And I saw some conspiracy theorists out there about like, I wonder how much Jeopardy gets paid for clues like that. And I'm like, they probably don't. Like, they they tell you when things are sponsored. They get paid for those. I imagine they're not trying to hide the... F- I don't know. This does not seem like a... Like a, ooh, they snuck this in and got paid by the makers of the movie. I think mm-hmm. it's just like, it is really coincidental. But that's correct. So he jumps up and Crystal... Uh, put what is murder on the Orient Express, uh, which mm-hmm. is incorrect, and wagered ten thousand two hundred one. So yes, right. Author, basically same story. Not, mm-hmm. I mean, not really, but yeah. So Lawrence gets another win, and we get to see that mustache for another day. Mm-hmm. And uh, so on Wednesday, we have the contestants: James Cantras, a historian and professor from Brooklyn, New York; Michelle Bemis a high school history teacher from Allen Park, Michigan, and Lawrence Long, a nursing student and stay-at-home uncle from East Bend, North Carolina, whose two-day cash winnings total $43,591. And we have the Jeopardy round categories alphabetically first, books for young readers, the business of television, sporty lingo, I'll be, be in quotation marks, and the judge of that. I'll be the judge of that. The business of television was not actually about kind of, you know, sort of behind the scenes stuff and instead was about television shows in which a business was prominently featured. Right. And uh, what, what you know, things about those businesses. So um, a clue about 20 pound branded Dunder Mifflin this... Uh, that fans of the office could buy that was paper right the the office is like a like a paper sales company yeah um there was one about don draper and his advertising pitch and you had to remember what show that was it was mad men mm-hmm. uh they wanted to know about what brand of beer was on the simpsons why that would be duff uh, that's duff you can really taste the goat <laughs> Which, which show had Oceanic Air Flight 815, which was that was Lost. Yeah. The more lost. I think back on Lost, the more I'm like, it really did just last like four seasons too long. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm still mad. Yeah. Because like when, you, when you're in it and you're watching it and you get to the end and you try to, 
you try to be the intellectual who's like, yeah, that's really deep and, and like it's a complicated story at the end, but I get it, right? Like, no, uh, but, mm, no. But with, with some more space and the ability to look back and say like, maybe it just wasn't, maybe the ending like, just wasn't just good. Just cut it right at not Penny's boat. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's the second time today I've heard a reference to that particular, that, that exact <laughs> because reference. Because that was the pinnacle of the series. Yeah. I'll die on this hill. Anyway. Oh my god. When Just when like they all, all the are like reunited in the afterlife in a like a non-denominational chapel. You wanted it to be denomina- denominational. You wanted to you wanted them to to pick a side. That was the issue. No. No. <laughs> no. I just like I mean non-denom I guess non-denominational wasn't the right word. Like interfaith like I Yeah. It it was a chapel for anything. Yeah, it like it just looked like like a like a like an airport chapel or mm-hmm. something like a hospital chapel. Maybe it was supposed to be an airport chapel. That would actually be smart and interesting. I don't think so because I seem to recall I seem to recall them walk like someone walking into it from like the street side, like from a yeah. sidewalk. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I'm. Uh, yeah. And like the whole like that whole like they just completely lost the thread. Yeah. For like the entire like like for seasons. Yeah. And like the the beginning had been so good that when J.J. Abrams was like, "We've got a plan for the end of the show," I I believed him. Yeah, he really. And I us. don't think he was telling me the truth. There's no way of knowing unless J.J. Yeah. You, you want to come on the podcast and you can talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, finally can, clear can. the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, for, for our dozens of listeners. <laughs> uh, who we all love um, very much and appreciate. Y- you know, I haven't seen Better Call Saul, but. You know, Breaking Bad was good from beginning to end, uh, and and the the thousand dollar clue you could get at by knowing Better Call Saul or by knowing Breaking Bad. Um, they wanted to know who runs Los Los Poyos Hermanos, and that's Gus Fring. Hmm. Anyway, all right, I brought it back around. Okay, so Daily Devil number one is in the ILB category at the six hundred dollar level. Uh, Lawrence finds it at pick number eight. He's at eight hundred. Michelle is at zero. James is at two thousand, and he uh, wagers a thousand. Gets a clue. Recent surveys have found that the soil on this atoll has plutonium concentrations vastly higher than Chernobyl's. And he takes a beat, but he gets it correct with what is the Bikini Atoll. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Lawrence is in the lead at 5,200, Michelle is at 4,400, and James is at 4,000. And we have the double Jeopardy round categories Vice Presidents, Mismatched Pairs, Three Letter Animals, 20th Century History, and the Movies. In author's footsteps, and it's time for a word, which all of the correct responses were words that have some kind of association with time or measurements of time. Like the $2,000 clue, it was a triple stumper, but it is a fact that I don't remember when I learned it a long time ago, but it has always tickled me. Quote, back in a this five-letter word, here's a flash. It's how long light takes to go one femtometer, a millionth of a millionth of a millimeter. James, I, I think, got a little tripped up and had a thought that he knew it, but then didn't after he rung in because he said, what's a flash? And flash is in the clue. Uh, that's incorrect. It's a jiffy. Mm-hmm. A jiffy is a specific length of time. That's delightful. Yeah. Just as technically a moment mm-hmm. is... I believe a minute and a half. Is it? I think so. Or maybe oh. I'm thinking of a different measurement. Anyway, a lot of these words are specific measurements of time. I just always do yeah. that. Fantasy nerds were throwing things at the TV in the author's footstep category <laughs> at the $800 <laughs> level. 
Uh, this author of fantasy novels and of mere Christianity worshipped at Holy Trinity Church in Oxford. And you can too. Michelle rang in and said, who is Tolkien? I mean, he's he's English, so that's good. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's C.S. Lewis, who we have talked about yep. on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yes, we sure have. With the deep I was very pleased with myself for um, knowing all of the vice president's clues. Nice. I think of myself as not especially good at vice presidents, but apparently I've made some progress. And that's where we find Daily Double number two. Um, it's at the $1,200 level. And Michelle finds it at the ninth pick. She's at 8400 to Lawrence's 4800 and James's 5600 She wagers 2000 and gets the clue. 33 days after taking the oath to be the Veep, he took another one to not be the Veep. And she gets that one correct. It's Tyler succeeding William Henry Harrison. Um, and if you need a mnemonic, I've probably said this on the podcast before. Uh, for the presidents from Van Buren through to Lincoln, it is very hard to pinpoint the forgettable presidents before Lincoln. Then you have to keep straight which P is pinpoint and which one is presidents. And uh, there's a couple of T's in there too, but that's Van Buren, William Henry Harrison, John Tyler, wait, very hard to, uh, Polk, Taylor, Fillmore, Pierce, Buchanan, Lincoln. Yeah. That's one of my favorite. Mnemonics. It's a good one. It has helped. It's a me. good one. Yes, I. It has stuck with me, so I, I appreciate that. Uh, Daily Devil number three is in the author's footsteps category at the twelve hundred dollar level. Uh, Lawrence finds this one also. He it's at pick number sixteen. He's at sixty eight hundred. Michelle is at eleven thousand two hundred, and James is at seventy two hundred. So he's in third place, and he makes it a true daily double. Gets the clue. The Globe Inn, with a vast selection of single malt scotches, was a hangout of this 18th century poet and can be yours. Uh, he picks up the clue of the scotch there and uh, hones in on Robert Burns, mm-hmm. which any clue in Jeopardy about anything, you have to be ready to answer Burns. Mm-hmm. They love yeah. Robbie Burns. Oh, yeah, they do. Um, he he whispered or like mouthed like 18th century to mm-hmm. himself before g- giving the correct response. And I was worried that he was like zooming in on the wrong part of the clue, you right. know? Well, I saw globe and I was like, ah, Shakespeare. Like, <laughs> and yeah. then it's like 18th century. And I was like, I don't think he made it to that century. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Before we go to final Jeopardy, I just... the. We finished out the round in mismatched pairs, which were pairs of things with the same last name or second word, as the case may be. Oral Roberts and John Roberts, Boston Market and Free Market. And then seeing James pull that last one, the $2,000 level, Mm -hmm. uh, tall Emirati building and see you again rapper. That is the Burj Khalifa and Wiz Khalifa. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So good. it It was so good. Uh, yeah, I, I have made that connection a number of times when I think about the Burj Khalifa. My it just comes into my head, Wiz Khalifa. I'm like, mm-hmm. that's so weird. Why are those the same? Yeah, <laughs> I should look up what Khalifa means, but I never do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Lawrence is in the lead with eighteen thousand. Michelle's at thirteen thousand two hundred. James is at eighty eight hundred. And we have the final Jeopardy category: American cities. And the clue recorded on a visit to this California city. YouTube's first video featured a man saying, "They have really, really, really long trunks." 
James wrote down what is San Francisco. Um, that's not quite correct. He wagered 8,000, so that drops him down to 800. Uh, but Michelle got it correct. What is San Diego? She's wagered 4401, bringing her up to 17,601. Uh, she was trying to cover an all in from James. And Lawrence has the correct response as well with what is San Diego? And he's wagered 13,201. That is more than a cover bet. Mm-hmm. Uh, that brings him up to 31,201 and gives him his third win. That's right. And on Thursday, we have the contestants. Nick Heisey, a technical services engineer from Madison, Wisconsin. Kelsey Davison, a program manager from Seattle, Washington. And Lawrence Long, a nursing student and stay-at-home uncle from East Bend, North Carolina, whose three-day cash winning total is now $74,792. And we have the Jeopardy Round categories, their 2021 college conference. Other countries separated by a common language. Amusing Canadians. War, Go Fish, and Gin Rummy which were questions about gin and or rum drinks. Mm-hmm. And boy, Kelsey got a uh, kind of a raw deal on that uh, in, in a couple of those clues. Uh, the $600 clue was down Havana way, rum, Coke, and lime make up this classic cocktail. And she guessed what's Havana Libre, uh, but that is a Cuba Libre, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yep. Lawrence got in on that one. And on the $800 level, the plum relatives seen here are used to make this type of gin fizz. Kelsey guesses what's slough or juniper, which juniper is incorrect. And she hadn't been ruled correct or incorrect with slough. And then she changed her answer, mm-hmm. which makes it wrong. Yep. And Lawrence got in with what is slow. Yep. Typically pronounced slow, which it's good to know that's spelled S-L-O-E. So a slow gin fizz does not fizz slowly in mm-hmm. case that's what you thought from that name i think i encountered it in writing before i ever mm. heard the name kelsey also had another unfortunate in the the 800 of the war category in 19th century mali umar tal built an empire with a series of these holy wars she guessed what are crusades and mayim said more specific which i thought was a a weird prompt but also like a i i guess like what else would you say if it's like we might be able to accept this yeah and she guessed what are the what are Roman crusades? They are looking for jihad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess crusade. I'm like looking it up and like the the like kind of capital C crusades were the crusades, right? right. But like, but a crusade, like a crusade can be like you know a a a war or like strident you know struggle for you know for an idea or you know ideal or i guess i guess a religion like i think i think i can see i can see where they would go be with a be more specific yeah oh hey i was just bragging about how i got all the vice president questions right i also got almost all of the college conferences which is not something you would expect from me we'll just we'll just leave it there congratulations yeah thank you Making progress. Yeah. Daily Double number one is in the war category at the $1,000 level. And Lawrence finds it at the ninth pick. He's got 1800 and he is in a three-way tie. You don't see that too no. often. Not, not after the first question. <laughs> yeah. He makes it a true Daily Double and gets the clue. In 1814, this man later to be president helped negotiate the Treaty of Ghent, ending the War of 1812. He tries James Monroe, but they're looking for John Quincy Adams here. Mm -hmm. So that drops him back down to zero. But that's okay. 
51 questions left to go before final Jeopardy. Yep. At the end of the Jeopardy round, he's made it back into the lead. Lawrence is at 5,200. Kelsey's at 2,400. Nick is at 3,400. And we have the double Jeopardy categories. That's where that is. Add a letter. Each response is going to be two words there. From the British Royal website, recent books, singing about the weather, and ER, which turned out to be people with those initials, not clues about the show the the television show or about emergency rooms also yeah also not that yep they had a picture of nk jemison at the two thousand dollar level of recent books and i did not realize she was as young as she is Hmm. she's like her stuff is everywhere and she seems so skilled i like figured that she was older Mm -hmm. okay so i think this is another tough break for kelsey the, from the British Royal website category at the $800 level, the clue was a dachshund named Pipkin mated with the queen's favorite breed. So her majesty ended up with some of these hybrids. And Kelsey rang in and said, what are corgi dachshund hybrids? And she was ruled incorrect. The correct the response they were looking for here is dorgy, which is apparently what you call that particular mix. That particular, Yes. I think they should have taken Corgi Dachshund hybrid, right? Like, because it's not, it's not incorrect. She was providing new information that was not in the clue, right? Mm-hmm. Because the Queen's favorite breed, right? You need to know that that's Corgi. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with you. Like, they didn't ask for the name of the breed. Yeah, like, it didn't specifically and, like, ask for the. Those breed. names are not like official anyway, right? Like, I mean, and, and I say this as a as a, a golden doodle owner, right? Like, mm-hmm. but those are all like kind of made up, kind of you know neologisms that are like there are more being invented all the time, right? Like, I don't think they were clear that they were asking for like the, you know, kind of cute new name for that particular hybrid and i think they should have taken corgi dachshund hybrid which arguably arguably is like more technically correct right like right yeah because if it's not an official name then yeah uh daily double number two is in the recent books category at the 800 dollar level uh lawrence finds it at pick number 17 he's at 9200 kelsey's at 9600 nick is at 10200 it's a close game he wagers 5000 gets a clue published in 2020 the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes by this author is set in Panem, and he is not able to pull a name, and that is Suzanne Collins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Panem would have been the the route in if you if you didn't know that particular book. Yeah. And uh, Daily Double number three is in the From the British Royal website category at the $1,200 level, and Nick finds this one at the 27th pick. He's at 11,000 to Lawrence's 8,600 and Kelsey's 10,800. He wagers 2,000 and gets the clue. On October 21, 1950, she was baptized in the music room of Buckingham Palace. And he gets it. He hesitates. Yeah, he seemed to have a really hard time. Yeah. Um, And then, like, it seemed like he was just producing a name that he was pretty sure was one of the one of the royals like i'm not sure sort of how much he remembered about who was who but he does get it correct it's princess mm-hmm. anne 
So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Lawrence is at 8,600, Kelsey is at 12,800, and Nick is just ahead at 13,000. The category for Final Jeopardy is 20th Century People, and the clue is, in 1946, she was aboard a train to Darjeeling when she heard what she later described as the call within a call. Lawrence got it correct with who is Mother Teresa, Mm -hmm. and he bet everything got him up to 17,200. Kelsey also got it correct with who is Mother Teresa, and she wagered 5,000, which does get her above Lawrence's all-in. And Nick also got it correct with who is Mother Teresa, and he made a cover bet of 12,900, so he is the new champion. Mm-hmm. And on Friday, we have the contestants Dave Rapp, a writer from Valley Village, California, Jillian Cruz, a student at the University of Kansas from Kansas City, Missouri, and Nick Heisey, a technical services engineer from Madison, Wisconsin, whose one-day cash winnings total $25,900. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, Names of the Past, American Folklore, Boats and Ships, I'm Too Sexy, a Lyrical Potpourri, My Movie Occupation, and Ordinal Phrases. D- Dave struck a an uncommon appearance for Jeopardy with his purple mohawk. And I loved it. Also, his whole look was great. It was impeccable. Also, I mean, if we want to talk about Jeopardy contestants wearing, uh, like, solid color shirts with gray vests, I mean... An iconic look. It has been done... By me, done best by Kyle. <laughs> I don't. I don't know about best. Dave looked really <laughs> done, good. Done earlier <laughs> so by would, Kyle. <laughs> yes, I would say. If, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dave looked great. Love the whole look. Yeah, and played well too. Yep. The two hundred dollar level of my movie occupation took me back to the deep dive from Stephen Grade. Uh, Jimmy Stewart and Mister Smith goes to Washington after going to Washington. Um, Dave got that one. That's a senator, and uh, Stephen Grade did a great uh, deep dive with like a recap and like all kinds of stuff about uh, about that film. Yes, he did. Mm-hmm. That was a while ago. Way back. Yeah, but it was very good. It was, it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. There was an error in the ordinal phrases category at the $600 level. Mm. Uh, The clue there was the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Mark 20 gave us this idiom for anything done at the last minute. Nick got that one correct. It's the 11th hour. There is no such chapter of the Bible as Mark 20. They meant Matthew 20. Oh. Mark goes up to chapter 16. The shorter ending stops at verse 8. The longer end ending is chapter 16 verses 9 through 20 and that's where the gospel according to mark ends the ending of the gospel according to mark is like super abrupt and at some Mm. point fairly early after it was written somebody sort of tacked on kind of a you know kind of some closing verses Mm. just to just to flesh it out a little bit yeah like it like it ends with like the women see the resurrected Jesus at the tomb and then it's like, and they said nothing to anyone for they were terrified, like period. That's the end of the, of the thing. Print it, um, ship you know. it. We're done. You know, and then, and then like somebody later on tacked on like 11 more verses that are like, but people found out and word spread and, you know, the work of Jesus continues or like, whatever. I don't, I can't remember yeah. exactly what's in the longer ending, you know, but it's just sort of, Takes it from abrupt to like, and then the story continued from there. Sure. But in any case, that's that's chapter 16. There's no such thing as Mark 20. 
Well, can't trust Jeopardy anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One mistake, all credibility gone. Yep. Literally thousands of accurate clues. Mm-hmm. Only takes one. They are generally very accurate, so it's, you know, it's surprising to see that slip through the cracks. Right, right. Yeah. Daily Double number one is in the boats and ships category at the $800 level. It's pick number 23. Nick finds it. He's at 3400 Jillian is at negative 400 and Dave is up to 6000 And he bets it all. Way to go, Nick. Mm-hmm. And he gets the clue. These boats in the lagoon at Boston's Public Garden were inspired by the opera Lohengrin and declared a Boston landmark. Nick's from the Midwest, it would seem. Maybe he's never been to Boston Public Garden. And so he guesses what are Viking longships <laughs> going, going on the Wagner route? I guess I, I, I see how he got there now that you say that. Yep. Yeah. Lohengrin, not necessarily that, that um, Viking-inspired uh, as the ring cycle. Uh, those are the swan boats, though. If you've been to Boston's Public Garden, you've known that. Yeah. You've seen the, seen the swan boats, for sure. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round... Nick uh, has gotten back to 1,200. Jillian's still at negative 400, and Dave is up to 7,200. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, A Place in the Sun, Autobiographies, Weapons, Flower Names, Translate the British English, and ST on the TV. Uh, Each correct response, a word starting with S and a word starting with T. Yep. And that Translate the British English category, they used like kind of a stylized font for the mm-hmm. for the word that they wanted you to give its American equivalent. Mm-hmm. It's we- really weird seeing a non-Jeopardy font on a Jeopardy clue card, though. It is. Uh, like when they do clues about E.E. E. Cummings, where things are lowercase. It's very disconcerting. It is off-putting. There's so much that's unpredictable in our world right now, and... And you do this to us? <laughs> our one yeah. refuge? Mm-hmm. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Whatever. Someday, I will remember Sam Tarley's name from Game of Thrones and stop saying Samwise Gamgee, but mm. Friday, February 11th was not the day. Nice. I, I knew that it wasn't the correct response because it was supposed to be an ST, and yet Samwise Gamgee is the name that leaps to my mind whenever I see that character. And, and like, rightly so, I think, right? Like, tell me tell me that Samuel Tarley is not, like, just kind knock of an off Samwise Gamgee. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. I mean, the name and the character. Yeah. $2,000 clue of A Place in the Sun, just our obligatory mention of Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Just again, to yep. reiterate the point, like, just, just know things about Ethiopia if you're going yeah. on the show. Yep, they're on a huge Ethiopia kick. Daily Double number two is in the flower names category at the $2,000 level, and Dave finds it at the 20th pick. He has 14800 He's in the lead. Nick's at 10400 Jillian's at 4000 Dave wagers 4000 and he gets the clue. This flower, whose name is derived from wolf, is also a word used to describe wolves. And he gets this one correct. It is uh, lupine. Lupin? Lupine? He said lupin, which was... Lupin, except, yeah. Um, I've never heard of that flower. Like, I yeah. thought of the word lupine, and I was like, I don't I don't know of a flower that sounds like that. Yeah, I'd, I'd heard of the flower. This was when my eight-year-old figured out how Professor Lupin in Harry Potter gets his name. Uh, yes. Yeah, so that was, that was a fun moment in my house. 
Nice. Did you also explain Romulus and Remus then? I did not at that time. We'll get okay. there eventually. It's cool. Well, no, that's good to have more than one, like, revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number three is in the autobiographies category at the $1,200 level. Uh, it's pick number 28. Dave finds this one as well. He's up to 22800 Nick is at 13600 and Jillian's still at 4000 uh, And he wagers 5000 He gets the clue, Freedom in Exile is the autobiography of Tenzin Gyatso, better known by this religious title. And he gets that correct with what is the Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Dave has a lock with 29,800. A lock and a cool mohawk. And <laughs> lock and a hawk. Yeah. Nick is at 13,600, which is a good Jeopardy score. Like, let's, yes. let's be very clear. That is an excellent score. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jillian's at 4,000. And we have the final Jeopardy category, International Playwrights. And the clue, a piece of writing advice from this man who died in 1904, concludes otherwise, don't put it there. Jillian came up with who is Twain. That is not correct. She's wagered everything. That drops her down to zero. Nick tried who is Ibsen. Not a bad guess. You don't actually need to know that many international playwrights, and Ibsen is certainly like a, a good them. one to he's one of them. Yeah. One of a one of a small handful. Um so you know, that's that's a good guess. Uh Nick has wagered fifty three hundred. I'm not really sure what's behind that number for him. I I also don't know. It'd be 18,900. Yeah. It drops him down still above Jillian if she doubled up and got it right, I guess. Like yeah. with a little buffer. Maybe that's what his thinking was. I yeah. don't know. Anyway, that puts him at 8,300. And Dave found the correct response. Who is Chekhov? Anton Chekhov. From Star Trek. Yes, of course. Uh, no, Chekhov's gun. Uh, Chekhov is famed for his uh his wisdom that if in the first act you've hung a pistol on the wall then in the following one it should be fired otherwise don't put it there dave wagered 200 uh so that brings him up to an even thirty thousand. gives him the win and we will see him next week yes we will so this brings us to the mid episode break couple of Jeopardy business matters. Um, we are aware <laughs> that, the, uh, that the college tournament is happening simultaneously with this week's regular episodes. We're talking about kind of how to cover that. I'm about to go on vacation. And so we're, we're not going to cover it before my vacation. But when I get back, we might um, do like a little live video chat on the Patreon. Speaking of the Patreon, we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables. Uh, that's where we put our quiz questions before the episodes post and little bits of extra content. Like if we hop on a video chat to talk about the college tournament, that's where that'll be. If you want to help us uh, defray the costs of making this podcast, um, you can come on over to Patreon and throw us a couple bucks a month and um, get access to whatever extra stuff we put there. And we really appreciate all of you who do that. And we also acknowledge there are more important things in the world than this podcast. A couple that are important to us, you can find at blacklivesmatter.com, communityjusticeexchange.org, and the Stop AAPI Hate GoFundMe. And if, you know, you're having to make strategic decisions about how to support things in the world, a podcast is nice, but there are more important things. So uh, we like to uh, amplify those. Yes, we do. We also want to acknowledge... That 
oh my gosh, Jeopardy is doing a second chance tournament. (laughs) I personally just wanted it hard enough. Yep. It's all Emily. Yeah. Kyle told me that I manifested it, actually. Mm -hmm. I'm not eligible for it, so I didn't manifest it very well. (laughs) But (laughs) That's a careful what you wish for kind of thing. Yeah. I am ecstatic. That yes. Jeopardy has listened to the fan community and like has decided that this is a like a viable thing that's going to be f- like fun and uh, enjoyable. It's possible that it's going to run uh, concurrently with regular season Jeopardy, like the college tournament is. Mm-hmm. So we're waiting for details on that. It is going. The eligibility is going to be limited to people who competed since the last tournament of champions, and like this is a great season for a second chance tournament because we had um, a number of super champs who just like completely bulldozed a A lot of very good players, extremely competent players who really, really deserve that second chance. A, uh, a Jeopardy, was it like a blog post? Yeah. From uh, the uh, executive producer, whose name is escaping me now? Escaping me now. Michael Davies announced that they are going to do this second chance tournament and that he's aware that many prior contestants will be very sad to hear that this is only for people who competed in the last year or so and that he's not excluding the possibility of expanding the pool in the future. Yes. So, yeah, there are literally thousands, I think. A former Jeopardy contestants who are who right now are like, oh, oh, pick me, pick me. It could be me. Yeah. Yes. I, I believe you uh, have stated that the criteria should be highest Coriette score among contestants who lost to super champions. That is, yes, because that is the criteria by <laughs> that would which get you in. <laughs> that would get me in. <laughs> Where are you standing these days in terms of number of wins or dollars? Kyle, like if- I think I'm 77 at this okay. point. All right, so we would need to have several tournaments. Yeah. If we were it- if we were using okay. Or or we would need to proceed back chronologically. Yeah, yeah, unless they're just going backward season by season, then it wouldn't yep. be that that, yeah. that tough. If we take into account intangibles like does this person who never won a game of Jeopardy like co-host a podcast about Jeopardy? Or, like, did, did people on Twitter really think that they were, like, you know, fun to watch? Mm-hmm. Um, that might that might give me a little boost. Anyway, that's, that's enough podcast talking about my chances to be on this tournament. But, oh, my gosh, I would love, I would love to be on a second chance tournament. That would be a lot of fun. But I'm also going to watch, love watching whoever does get to be on a second chance tournament. It's been right. a dream of the Jeopardy community for a long time. I've probably, really, probably since Jeopardy started, right? Like, who who hasn't had the thought of, oh, man, uh-huh. if only. Yeah. If I just had another shot. I know, I know. We just we just need to not let it tear us apart. Right. Yes. Yeah. But, Good like, ugh, I, I really, really love that this, is gonna, that this is going to happen. Yeah. I am excited about it, too. So do you have deep dive guesses, Kyle? I do. Okay. Are we talking about the Algonquin Roundtable? I considered it, but we're not. Okay. Uh, are you talking about Louis Armand Bougain de <laughs> Absolutely not. Okay. Because that's just too hard to say. Yeah. Uh, okay. Are you telling us about the Shroud of Turin? 
I'm not. Okay. And, you know, it's it's a little unfair to you trying to take a guess because I have taken a missed clue and taken it in a, a, a little bit of a weird direction. Okay. Based on something that I've always kind of thought would be fun. So um, the clue is from the Books for Young Readers category in the Wednesday game. It's at the $1,000 level. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was in from the mixed up files of this woman, a girl named Claudia and her brother run away from home and hide out at the Met Museum. The correct response here was Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. So that the title of the book is From the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. Um, I don't know if the contestants didn't know the book or if it's just a tricky enough name that they didn't want to attempt it and potentially, you know, like not get it exactly correct. Yeah. That was a book I was very fond of as a kid. And it also was a Newbery winner. And I've always kind of thought that it would be fun to take one of the kind of big literary awards and just do like a whirlwind tour of here are the things that won that award. Okay. Yeah. I I like that. Yeah. So this is a this is a big old list deep dive. The Newbery Award was first given fully 100 years ago in 1922. So we've got 101 titles to cover. So we are not going in depth on really any of these. Um, But I did enjoy working my way through the list. Um, I'm going to give you the title and the author and like a little like sentence or two about each. And it's really kind of, as you hear all 101, you start to see some kind of trends emerge as like kind of what's in vogue kind of shifts, um, what genres are getting kind of uh, lifted up in different eras. And, uh, you know, and you also can kind of hear what's stood the test of time. And, you know, like, it's 80 years old, but you like still know that title. And what book you're like, oh, I've literally never heard of that, despite like, being a book person. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But let's start with a quick overview of the Newbery Medal. Um, So the Newbery Medal was named for the 18th century British bookseller John Newbery. um, And it's awarded annually by the Association for Library Service to Children, which is a division of the American Library Association. It's given to the author of the most distinguished contribution to American literature for children. Um, And uh, the the committee also awards a variable number of citations to leading contenders called Newbery Honors uh, or Newbery Honor Books. Um, until 1971, these were called Runners Up, and they changed the name at that point, and they changed it retroactively for all the titles that had been, almost all the titles, I think, that had been given that honor in the past. To be eligible, a book must be written by a United States citizen or resident, and it must be published either first or simultaneously in the United States in English. Uh, during the year prior to uh, the year the prize is given. Uh, It was established in June of 1921 at the annual conference of the the American Library Association and inaugurated in 1922 to consider books published in the prior year. In 1932, the committee felt that it was important to encourage new writers in the field, so they instituted a rule that uh, an author would win a second Newbery only if the vote was unanimous, that rule stayed in place until 1958 and was then revoked. The original Newbery Award was based on votes by a selected jury of children's librarian section officers. Uh, books could be nominated by any librarian, and then the jury voted for one favorite. Uh, after a couple of years of that, the process was changed, and instead of uh, choosing the winner by popular vote, um, a special award committee was selected to choose the winner. 
there have been a number of kind of revisions to the process of like who gets to be on that committee and how it's formed. But since 19, 1978, it's been a committee of 15 people, newly formed every year with eight elected, six appointed, and one appointed chair. Uh, the same body also oversees the Caldecott Award, but those are there are two separate committees of 15, uh, one for the Newberry and one for the Caldecott. So that's a little about the Newberry. And let's uh, let's get into it. So in 1922, and I've got a little more about this one than most of the others, uh, the first Newbery Award was actually to a nonfiction book. Uh, it went to The Story of Mankind by Hendrik Willem van Loon. This was when the Newbery Award was still decided by jury. Uh, the book received 163 out of 212 votes. The story of mankind was written for Van Loon's children and tells in brief chapters the history of Western civilization, beginning with primitive man, covering the development of writing, art, and architecture, the rise of major religions, and the formation of the modern nation-state. Wow. After the book's first edition in 1921, Van Loon published an updated edition in 1926, which included an extra essay titled After Seven Years about the effects of World War I. And then in 1938, another update with a new epilogue. And then after his death in 1944, the volume was added to extensively by his son, Jarrett Van Loon. And the most recent version by Robert Sullivan was published in 2014 and covers events up to the early 2010s. I had not heard of this book, but no. apparently it is, uh, it, it is still, it's still, it's still finding its audience. In 1957, it was loosely adapted into a dark fantasy film of the same title, in which humanity is on trial in the high court of outer space, <laughs> with the prosecution being like like Satan, basically, and the defense being the spirit of man, and both presenting evidence from throughout history uh, in favor of or against humankind. Okay. The film had a star-studded cast, including the Marx Brothers, um, and Hedy Lamarr playing Joan of Arc, among hmm. other notable names so newberry award sort of starting off with a bang um but yeah. we're gonna we're gonna just steamroll on through the next hundred <laughs> um okay. yeah so 1923 the award goes to the voyages of dr doolittle by hugh lofting this is the second dr doolittle book um dr doolittle of course is the titular doctor who can talk with the animals also featured in uh, in movies based on the books in 1924, it goes to The Dark Frigate by Charles Boardman Hawes. This is a historical novel of adventure on the high seas. There's like piracy and stuff. It's set in the 17th century. In 1925, Tales from Silverlands by Charles Finger, a collection of 19 folk tales from indigenous people of Central and South America collected during his travels there. In 1926, it goes to Shen of the Sea by Arthur Bowie Christman. These are 16 original stories Written in the style of humorous Chinese folktales. Okay. Sounds similar to the previous one, but the previous one was based on travels and like the collection of actual indigenous folktales. These are fake folktales made up by a white American. To try and sound yeah. Chinese. Uh -huh, to cool. try and sound Chinese. So like just... just Put a pin in cool, that man. one because this is not going to be like kind of the only one along these lines. Mm -hmm. In 1927, Smokey the Cow Horse by Will James. It's a Western tale of the life of a cow horse, like, the, like a working horse belonging to a cowboy. Mm -hmm. In 1928, the award goes to Gay Neck, The Story of a Pigeon by okay. Don Gopal Mukherjee, who is remembered 
at least on his Wikipedia article, as the first successful Indian man of letters in the United States. Uh, so hmm. this is a, a children's novel. It's set in India, telling the story of the life of a trained pigeon and its adventures. In 1929, the award goes to The Trumpeter of Krakow by Eric P. Kelly. It's a young adult historical novel centered on a fire that burned down much of Krakow in 1462. In 1930, it goes to Hitty, Her First Hundred Years by Rachel Field. This is the first time it goes to a book by a female author. Uh, this is a children's novel. It's told from the point of view of an inanimate doll as she comes into the possession of various owners from the 1820s to the 1920s. In 1931, it goes to The Cat Who Went to Heaven by Elizabeth Coatsworth. It's a children's novel set in ancient Japan about a penniless artist and a calico cat his housekeeper brings home. The storyline is supposedly based on an old Buddhist folktale and includes, as asides, a short telling of the Buddha's life and brief accounts of some of the Buddha's previous lifetimes as animals, as in the Jataka tales, which we actually talked about maybe a, a month or two ago. Yeah, very recently. Yeah. Uh, in 1932, it goes to Waterless Mountain by Laura Adams Armour, a book that revolves around a young Navajo man called Younger Brother, who is training to follow in his uncle's footsteps to become a medicine man. In 1933, it goes to Young Fu of the Upper Yangtze. Uh, the story revolves around Fu Yunfa, the son of a widow from the countryside of Western China, who wishes to become a coppersmith in the big city on the Yangtze River in Chongqing. Uh, that one is by Elizabeth Foreman Lewis, who had um you know lived part of her life in in china but you know her background was kind of you know white american mm -hmm. in 1934 the award goes to invincible louisa by cornelia meigs it's a biography of louisa may alcott the uh, first biography that we're going to see here in the newberry medal winners uh louisa may alcott of course was the author of little women among other books in 1935, it goes to Dobry by Monica Shannon, uh, the story of a young Bulgarian boy who wants to be an artist. His family initially resists this. They want him to take over the family farm, but with his grandfather's support, he's able to pursue his dream. In 1936, it goes to Caddy Woodlawn by Carol Ryrie Brink. Uh, this is a historical fiction novel set in the 1860s in Wisconsin about a tomboy girl and her daily life. In 1937, it goes to Roller Skates by Ruth Sawyer, a fictionalized account of a year in the author's life in which her parents were traveling in Europe and she was left in the care of a nanny for a year. And the freedom that she experienced during that year after an excessively strict upbringing. In 1938, the award goes to The White Stag by Kate Charity, a mythical retelling that follows the warrior bands of Huns and Magyars across Asia and into Europe, including the life of Attila the Hun. Um, Charity was Hungarian, so she's she's kind of speaking from her own kind of cultural background here. Mm -hmm. um, in contrast to many of the prior award winners. Right. In 1939, it goes to Thimble Summer by Elizabeth Enright, uh, about a nine-year-old girl's summer adventures in Depression-era Wisconsin. In 1940, we've got another biography, Daniel Boone by James Doherty, uh, telling the life story of the famous pioneer. In 1941, Call It Courage by Armstrong Sperry. Uh, this is a novel set in the Pacific Islands about a boy named Mafatu trying to overcome his fear of the sea. 
1942, it goes to The Matchlock Gun by Walter D. Edmonds. This is a historical novel set in New York in 1756 about a family where the father is away fighting in the French and Indian War, leaving the mother and children um, who seek to defend themselves and their home using the title weapon, the matchlock gun. Um, It's been criticized for its portrayal of Native Americans. In 1943... Adam of the Road by Elizabeth Janet Grey won. Uh, it's a historical novel about the escapades of a young boy in 13th century England. In 1944, Johnny Tremaine by Esther Forbes. That was a, uh, that's one of the, one of the titles that, that I was like, oh yeah, no, I know that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, historical fiction. It's set in Boston immediately prior to the American Revolution. Uh, the protagonist is a young man, and the plot revolves around apprenticeships and the rising tensions between patriots and loyalists. In 1945, Rabbit Hill by Robert Lawson wins. It's a short novel about animals in the countryside and humans moving into a nearby empty house. Literary critics have pointed out what they thought was sort of obvious subtext around integration um, and social issues of the time. 1946, uh, the winner is Strawberry Girl by Lois Lenski. Uh, This is a realistic fiction is what I saw, a children's book. Um, It is set among the quote unquote crackers of rural Florida. Uh, Apparently not a slur in this case. Um, This refers to people of like British heritage who settled in like predominantly kind of Spanish colonial Florida. I don't know. Still feels weird. <laughs> it still feels weird to say it. Uh, um, Lenski wrote a series of regional novels, um, traveling to meet people and collect stories in various regions and publishing a book about each of them. In 1947, the winner is Miss Hickory by Carol Sherwin Bailey. Uh, the protagonist is a doll made from a hickory twig whose existence is thrown into tumult when her owners go to Boston for the winter and leave her behind. Uh, but farm and forest animals come to her aid. In 1948, The 21 Balloons by William Payne Dubois wins. It's a novel about a retired schoolteacher whose ill-fated balloon trip leads him to discover Krakatoa, an island full of great wealth and fantastic inventions. In the in this novel, there's like this sort of like secret, sophisticated like civilization like existing on Krakatoa. Mm. And it has a depiction of the 1883 eruption of Krakatoa, which Kyle talked about on a deep dive a while back. I did. Mm-hmm. That's accurate. In 1949, we have uh, the the queen of horse books, Marguerite Henry, winning with King of the Wind. This is the life story of a racehorse born in Morocco, uh, whose life takes him to France and then to England. In 1950, The Door in the Wall by Margaret D'Angeli wins. A young man's coming of age in England during the bubonic plague is the topic of this historical fiction. In 1951, the winner is Amos Fortune, Free Man. Uh, This is by Elizabeth Yates. It's a biographical novel based on a true story of an enslaved man who was born in Africa, sent to America via the Atlantic slave trade, and eventually bought his freedom. In 1952, Eleanor Estes wins with her novel Ginger Pie. Um, It's a short one. It's like just sort of a heartwarming thing about a puppy. In 1953, Secret of the Andes by Anne Nolan Clark, in which a modern boy learns a mysterious secret about his Inca ancestors. In 1954, the winner is And Now Miguel by Joseph Crumgold. 
Miguel Chavez, a 12-year-old from New Mexico, dreams of seeing the world and his dreams are fulfilled, but not in kind of the way he'd expected. In 1955, the winner is The Wheel on the School by Mindert Djong. Uh, and this one is illustrated by Maurice Sendak. Mm. Um, uh, many of these have illustrations, not like sort of picture book style illustrations where you would have like kind of big full page color illustrations and like a little bit of text but like sort of think like um like a classic like rolled doll or like alice in wonderland where like every few pages there's like a little line drawing like those kinds of illustrations um Mm -hmm. a lot of the early newberry award winners are like that or newberry medal rather anyway this one is illustrated by maurice sendak it's the story of children working together to bring the population of storks back to their village in 1956, the winner is Carry On, Mr. Bowditch by Jean Lee Latham. Um, this is a biography for children of Nathaniel Bowditch, who honestly I had not heard of much. Maybe I recognize the name. Sailor, mathematician, kind of navigation guy. Um, in 1957, the winner is Miracles on Maple Hill by Virginia Sorensen. This is a novel about a family that moves from Pittsburgh to the countryside after the father returns from being a prisoner of war. And the the miracles there include sort of his kind of recovery from that trauma. In 1958, the winner is Rifles for Weighty by Harold Keith, um, a historical fiction novel about a 16-year-old soldier in the Civil War. In 1959, another historical fiction novel, The Witch of Blackbird Pond by Elizabeth George Spear, um, about a young woman in late 17th century New England. In 1960, Joseph Crumgold wins again. Uh, At this point, the Newberry Committee has um, revoked that uh, rule about impeding people from receiving two awards. He wins with a novel titled Onion John, uh, set in the 1950s in New Jersey. Uh, The story of a of 12-year-old Andy Rush and his friendship with an eccentric hermit who lives on the outskirts of his small town. In 1961, Island of the Blue Dolphins by Scott O'Dell Mm. wins. Um, It's the story of a 12-year-old girl named Karana who is stranded alone for years on an island off the California coast. And it's based on the true story of Juana Maria, a Native American woman left alone for 18 years on San Nicolas Island during the 19th century. In 1962, the winner is The Bronze Bow by Elizabeth George Spear. This is her second. Uh, It's only been three years at this point since she won her previous award. So this is like the second shortest, or sorry, this is tied for the shortest span of time between two Newbery Awards. Uh, We'll get to the the other kind of three-year two awards person later. Uh, This book is set in first century Galilee in Israel, and the main character is a young Jew named Daniel Bar-Jamin, who lives at the same time as Jesus of Nazareth. Um, It's been criticized for kind of its portrayal of Judaism and Christianity. In 1963, we have a great classic, A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lengel. How do you summarize it in one sentence? It's a children's science fantasy with religious overtones. And any more than that, I will go down a whole rabbit hole and it'll be the whole rest of the deep dive. Um, Right. But great, great book. In 1964, we have It's Like This Cat by Emily Cheney Neville um, about a 14-year-old boy growing up in New York City in a conflict-ridden home and his beloved cat. 
1965, we have Shadow of a Bull by Maya Wojciechowska about a boy training to become a bullfighter in Spain. In 1966, I Juan de Pareja by Elizabeth Borton de Trevino. Uh, the book is based on the portrait of Juan de Pareja, a real-life portrait that Diego Velasquez made of his slave, Juan de Pareja. Um, it's written in the first person um, by the, you know, the subject of that painting, a half-African enslaved person. In 1967, the winner is Up a Road Slowly by Irene Hunt. It's a coming-of-age novel about an or orphaned girl being raised by her aunt. In 1968, we have From the Mixed-Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler by E.L. Konigsberg. This is, uh, it's so great. It's about a girl and her little brother who run away from home and hide out in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, uh, where they try to solve an art-related mystery. Ooh. Yeah, it is framed as a letter from Mrs. Frankweiler, uh, the donor of the piece of art to her lawyer telling their story after she has become involved in it. Mm. In 1969, The High King by Lloyd Alexander wins. This is a high fantasy novel, uh, and it concludes the um, five volume Chronicles of Prydain. In 1970, the winner is Sounder by William H. Armstrong. It is the story of a black sharecropper family and their struggles, and Sounder is the name of their dog. Mm -hmm. In 1971, Summer of the Swans by Betsy Byers wins. It is a children's novel. What I found is it's about 14-year-old Sarah Godfrey's search for her missing, mentally challenged brother, Charlie. That's probably not language that I would choose, but having not read the book, I'm not sure quite how to clarify it. Mm -hmm. In 1972, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim by Robert C. O'Brien. Oh, man. Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. It's about a widowed field mouse who seeks out the help of a colony of rats who turn out to be escaped lab rats who have been experimented on by humans and have developed superior intelligence and have a literate and technologically advanced society. And oh, man, I loved that book when I was a kid. It's so good. I've never read it. I'll look it up. Oh, it's great. In 1973... Julie of the Wolves by Jean Craighead George wins. Uh, this is set on the Alaska North Slope and features a young Inuk, that's uh, the single of Inuit girl, um, experiencing the changes forced upon her culture from the outside. In 1974, the winner is The Slave Dancer by Paula Fox. Uh, it tells the story of a 13-year-old boy named Jesse Bollier, who is captured from his New Orleans home because of his musical skills and brought to an American ship where he is uh, involved in the uh, in the transatlantic slave trade, um, forced to play the fife in order to keep other slaves dancing and thus strong when they arrive at their destination. In 1975, uh, the winner is M.C. Higgins the Great by Virginia Hamilton. I looked at a bunch of summaries of this and got very confused, um, but it's about a young black boy in the rural Appalachian, Appalachian Mountains with like a plot about like encroaching strip mining. In 1976, The Grey King by Susan Cooper wins. It's the fourth of five books in her The Dark is Rising series, which is like a contemporary fantasy, like British series with Arthurian elements. Um, we talked about it a little bit during uh, during our Arthuriana deep dive a while back. Okay. In 1977, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry by Mildred D. Taylor, mm -hmm. uh, the first novel in the Logan Family series about a black family in 1930s Mississippi. It's social themes, including Jim Crow, Great the Great Depression, sharecropping, lynching. There are 
I think, quite a few novels and novellas in this series, prequels and sequels and whatnot. In 1978, the winner is Bridge to Terabithia by Catherine Patterson, about a boy becoming friends with his new neighbor and the imaginative, like rich games they play about the land of Terabithia. But she dies tragically and the rest of the novel deals with his grieving process. That one's gorgeous, too. Ugh. 1979, The Westing Game by Ellen Raskin wins. It's a murder mystery where a reclusive millionaire's will sends 16 people chasing the puzzle of which of the 16 is his killer. Uh, that one's great, too. There, there are some great ones here. Um, in 1980, A Gathering of Days, A New England Girl's Journal by Joan Bloss. Uh, it's historical fiction, obviously, uh, set in the 1830s, detailing the girl's daily life with, uh, you know, adventures big and small. In 1981, Jacob Have I Loved by Katherine Patterson. This is her second win in three years. So uh, that's another sort of that's tied for kind of the, the shortest span. Um, a coming of age novel set in a fishing town in the 1940s where there are twin girls. Caroline is the, the pretty and the pretty one and everyone's favorite. And the story focuses on her twin Louise and her, temp her attempt to free herself from Caroline's shadow. In 1982, we have sort of a weird winner. Uh, it's titled A Visit to William Blake's Inn, Poems for Innocent and Experienced Travelers, and it's by Nancy Willard. Um, it is a picture book, unlike many of the yeah. previous ones, um, and it's poetry. It's the first Newbery-winning book to also be named a Caldecott Honor Book, and it is original poetry by Nancy Willard, but inspired by the work of William Blake. Hmm. I had never actually heard of this, but I'm very intrigued. Um, in 1983, Dicey's Song by Cynthia Voigt wins. It's a sequel to Homecoming. Um, the Tillerman siblings are children in a family afflicted by numerous issues, socioeconomic, mental health, and so forth. In 1984, Beverly Cleary wins with Dear Mr. Henshaw, um, about a young boy whose parents are divorced, who begins a correspondence with his favorite author as part of a school assignment, but the correspondence blossoms and the boy develops a love for writing. Beverly Cleary said that she was inspired to write this after several young fans asked her to write about protagonists whose parents were divorced or divorcing. In 1985, the winner is Robin McKinley with The Hero and the Crown. That's a fantasy novel focusing on Aaron Dragon Killer, a heroine who was introduced in her previous book, The Blue Sword. In 1986, Sarah Plain and Tall by Patricia McLaughlin, um, about a family, a widowed man in the 19th century in the rural Midwestern United States, um, who writes an ad for a mail order bride wanting his children to have a mother, and the uh, the evolution of that relationship with themes of kind of grief and coping with change. In 1987, uh, Sid Fleischman wins with The Whipping Boy. Um, mm. It is set in kind of an ambiguous European historical kind of courtly setting. It's kind of got Prince and the Pauper vibes. Um, a bratty prince and the boy who is whipped when the prince misbehaves named Jemmy uh, end up on adventures. In 1988, Lincoln, a photobiography. This one's a big outlier <laughs> by <laughs> Russell Friedman. An illustrated biography of Abraham Lincoln with numerous photos. And another outlier in 1989, 
I don't know what got into the committee in these few years. Joyful Noise Poems for Two Voices, which is a great book, by the way. It's a, it's, it's a great book, but it's just not, you know, sort of, we've been like historical fiction, historical fiction, like contemporary right. fiction about a troubled family, historical fiction. And now it's, this is, a, it's a book of 14 children's poems about insects. And the, um, the concept is unusual in that the poems are written to be read aloud by two people. So there's like, two columns of text so that the readers are sometimes speaking simultaneously or alternating or saying different things at the same time. It's kind of a fun book. I encountered it like when I was a kid and it's it's very enjoyable, hmm. um, but really different from a lot of the other Newbery Medal winners. Yeah. In 1990, Lois Lowry wins with Number of the Stars. It's a historical fiction book about a Danish girl in Copenhagen who becomes part of her family's work with the resistance helping Danish Jews escape to Sweden. In 1991, Maniac McGee by Jerry Spinelli follows the story of an orphan boy looking for a home in the fictional town of Two Mills, a harshly segregated town, uh, segregated between the east and west sides of towns. He becomes a local legend for feats of athleticism and helpfulness and his ignorance of the sharp racial boundaries of the town. In 1992, Shiloh by Phyllis Reynolds Naylor uh, is wins it's the first in a quartet about a young boy in west virginia and the title dog uh whom he rescues from abuse in 1993 cynthia ryland wins with missing may it's set in west virginia it's about a young orphaned girl who is adopted by an elderly aunt and uncle from her apathetic caregivers but six years later her aunt may dies and she and her uncle grieve her loss together in 1994, Lois Lowry wins again with The Giver, which, oh, The Giver. Um, it's a dystopian novel in which society has solved all social ills by converting to sameness with a capital S, the eradication of emotion and choice and even the perception of color, in which young Jonas is selected to be the new giver, the person who holds the community's memory of before. In 1995, Walk Two Moons by Sharon Creech wins. It's a novel about family, about Native American cultural identity, about grief, about loss. It's a, it's a road trip novel with a story within a story. In 1996, The Midwife's Apprentice by Karen Cushman. Uh, set in medieval Europe, a homeless girl becomes a midwife's apprentice. Um, I remember really liking this one when I was like a preteen, uh, although I don't remember too much about it. In 1997, E.L. Konigsberg wins again with The View from Saturday. This is her second Newbery medal after the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. This is the longest anybody goes between Newbery medals. And it's about a sixth-grade academic quiz bowl team and their paraplegic teacher with multiple narrators that the various people involved narrate. And there are apparently like puzzle or like mystery elements. I haven't read it, but I'm very curious about it now. Hmm. In 1998, Out of the Dust by Karen Hesse is a novel in verse about a family in the Dust Bowl. Hmm. In 1999, Holes by Lewis Sacker, um, which I probably should have read, but I haven't. Um, oh, it's good. Oh, is it? Yeah. I, I, I'm not surprised. I hear about it a lot. I should probably, I mean, it's a kid's book, but I should probably read it. Centering on Stanley Yelnats, who is sent to Camp Green Lake, a correctional boot camp in a desert in Texas. Interconnecting stories, touching on various social themes. In 2000, 
The winner is Bud Not Buddy by Christopher Paul Curtis. Uh, this is the first book to receive both the Newbery Medal for Excellence in American Children's Literature and the Coretta Scott King Award, uh, which is given to outstanding African-American authors. Set in Flint, Michigan in 1936, The Adventures of a Young Black Boy with Jazz featuring prominently in the uh, throughout the book. In 2001, the winner is A Year Down Yonder by Richard Peck. Uh, Set in the Great Depression, a 15-year-old Chicago girl is sent to downstate Illinois to live with her grandmother on the farm. In 2002, the winner is A Single Shard by Linda Sue Park, and this is a historical novel set in 12th century Korea. In 2003, Crispin, The Cross of Lead by Avi. It's a historical novel. It's the second of a trilogy. It's some kind of like crime adventure thing. And most of the like reader reviews I found of it were just people being really angry. <laughs> couldn't find couldn't find much actual inter- information. In two thousand four, Kate DiCamillo wins with the tale of Despero. Kate DiCamillo bursts onto the <laughs> children's literature scene. Um, the main plot follows the adventures of a mouse named Despero Tilling as he sets out on his quest to rescue a beautiful human princess from the rats. In 2005, the winner is Kira Kira by Cynthia Kadohata, about a Japanese-American family living in Georgia in the 1950s. 2006, the winner is Criss Cross by Lynn Ray Perkins, uh, following the crisscrossing stories of a group of middle school children. It is set in the same kind of milieu as her previous book, All Alone in the Universe, although it's not like a sequel per se. In 2007, The Higher Power of Lucky by Susan Petron wins. It's a quirky novel about a girl named Lucky and her friends growing up in the California desert. It provoked some controversy because the word scrotum appears on the first page. Wow. Um, yep. <laughs> it goes right for it. Yeah. <laughs> you got you to gotta bury that if you don't want there to be like school board meetings about it. In 2008, Good Masters, Sweet Ladies, Voices from a Medieval Village by Laura Amy Schlitz. Uh, this book is a series of monologues, each spoken by a young member of a medieval village. And it was originally written to be performed by fifth grade students at the Park School of Baltimore, where Schlitz is a librarian. In 2009, Neil Gaiman wins with The Graveyard Book, telling the story of a boy named Nobody, uh, also known as Bod, short for Nobody, uh, Owens, who is adopted and reared by the supernatural occupants of a graveyard after his family is brutally murdered. Oof. Yeah, this it, it's great. I mean, like the the synopsis makes it sound very, very grim and like admittedly uh, a macabre premise, but it's it's a really enjoyable read. The audiobook is great. The graphic novel is great. The original, like, just textbook is great. Like, the whole thing. It's great. 2010, the winner is When You Reach Me by Rebecca Stead. This is a sci-fi mystery set in 1970s New York. And apparently it prominently features a game show. So I thought I'd mention that, uh, the $20,000 pyramid. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, In 2011, Moon Over Manifest by Claude Vanderpool uh, follows a young and adventurous girl named Abilene who is sent to manifest Kansas by her father in the summer of 1936. Uh, So another historical fiction. In 2012, Dead End in Norvelt by Jack Gantos. It's an autobiographical novel based in the author's hometown of Norvelt, Pennsylvania. In 2013, the winner is The One and Only Ivan by Catherine Applegate, about a silverback gorilla named Ivan who lived in a cage at a mall. And it's told from Ivan's point of view. In 2014, Kate DiCamillo wins again with Flora and Ulysses, The Illuminated Adventures. 
This is her second Newberry after winning for Despero. Um, this is the story of Flora Bell Buckman and a squirrel named Ulysses, and it's kind of comic book style. In 2015, The Crossover by Kwame Alexander wins. It is a novel entirely in verse, and it's about basketball. Mm. Yeah. Uh, in 2016, a straight-up picture book wins. Last Stop on Market Street by Matt De La Pena, about a young boy named CJ as he learns to appreciate the beauty in everyday things during a bus ride. In 2017, the winner is The Girl Who Drank the Moon by Kelly Barnhill. The book tells how Luna, after being raised by a witch named Zan, must figure out how to handle the magic powers she was accidentally given. In 2018, the winner is Hello Universe by Erin Entrada Kelly. The novel is told from the perspectives of four middle school students as one of them becomes trapped in a well. In 2019, the winner is Mercy Suarez Changes Gears by Meg Medina. In this one, Mercedes Suarez, the eponymous heroine, is a sixth grade scholarship student at an elite private school in South Florida, and the novel details her struggles at school and at home. In 2020, the winner is New Kid by Jerry Craft. It's a semi-autobiographical graphic novel about a black boy experiencing culture shock in his first year in a private school. And this one also won the Coretta Scott King Award. In 2021, the winner is When You Trap a Tiger by Tay Keller, uh, the story of a biracial girl, Lily, who learns about her heritage when her family moves in with Lily's Korean grandmother. Um, And this one also won the Asian Pacific American Literature Award. And in 2022, recently awarded The Last Quintista by Barbara Higuera uh, is a dystopian novel telling the story of Petra Pena, who, along with her family and a few hundred others, leave Earth to continue the human race after a comet strikes the planet. After awaking on a new planet, Petra is the only one who remembers Earth, and she must use storytelling to keep her people's history alive. Um, so those are all of the Newberry Medal winners. I encountered some critiques of the, the Newberry Medal, sort of basically saying these are books for children that adults like, mm-hmm. um, which seems valid that the committee tends to lean toward kind of like uh, literary sophistication and like mm-hmm. things that touch on like social issues in ways that maybe are appealing to adults, possibly at the expense of kind of, you know, what is kind of working for the, the primary audience of, uh, of children. Um, right. All that said, there are some brilliant books in this list. So, yeah. yeah. So I hope that was helpful or interesting to you or to any of our mm. listeners. It was certainly fun for me. Um, and I felt like I started to kind of see some themes emerge and some things that i kind of want to kind of chase down and and uh you know get a get a copy of from the library or whatever yeah definitely but are you ready for a quiz oh i've never been more ready for a quiz all right uh this quiz is on from the mixed up files of mrs basil e frankweiler okay questions kind of touching on various aspects of that novel have you encountered that have you read that i have not oh it's so great Well, I don't think any of this requires actual content knowledge of the novel. I'm just using kind of plot points as uh, or like things uh, related to its origins or whatever as kind of jumping off points for some questions. So question one from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler is structured as a narrative within a letter to Mrs. Frankweiler's lawyer. What is the literary literary term for that kind of structure? 
uh, in which the narrative is framed by correspondence. If nothing else, perhaps you know it via the later books of the Christian Bible. Um, and there's another famous novel using the same device that shares a significant syllable of the title. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if this is the right literary term, but I know that they are uh, often... I know that the epistles are the, like, the letters. Mm -hmm. So is it just, like, epistle? Uh, or we'll call it close enough. Yeah, uh, epistolary. Epistolary. It is, an ep okay. it is an epistolary novel. So I think epistle is close enough to count. There, there are many notable epistolary novels, um, but one of the kind of ones that comes up, at least in my mind, I think when people talk about epistolary novels, uh, is Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. because like it's like the ship captain who encounters Frankenstein's monster, who then like tells his story. Yeah, who um, meets but it's Victor like, Frankenstein and yeah, mm -hmm. the monster. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Writing home to his sister or whoever. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, so epistolary novels. So, all right, 10 points. Question two. It made a big impression on me as a young reader when the protagonists of Mixed Up Files eat at a particular type of dining establishment in which food and drinks are served by vending machines. The name for this kind of establishment is analogous to a similar sounding word for a laundry establishment, um, but uses a Greek prefix meaning self, as in self-serve. Um, what is the name of this largely obsolete type of dining establishment? Uh, based on your, I don't know the word, but based on your clues, I'm going to say an automat. It is an automat. Interesting. I was I've... so intrigued. Yeah, it's <laughs> um, <that's> a... <laughs> Sounds interesting. Yeah. Um, the first automat opened in Berlin in 1895, and they have mostly uh, faded away at this point. But uh, the the protagonist, Claudia, and her younger brother eat at an automat. I found an article, actually, about somebody encountering that same scene and becoming obsessed with automats. I'll, I'll, put, it on, I'll put a link on the Patreon. All right, uh, twenty point. You're at twenty points. So, question three: The great mystery of mixed up files revolves around a sculpture of an angel, which is suspected to be by which Renaissance artist, also a Ninja Turtle, and the sculptor of a famed Pieta. Uh, well, I believe the only, uh, I, I believe the one Ninja Turtle who's really known for his Pieta is Michelangelo. That is correct. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right, you're at 30 points. Question four. E.L. Konigsberg is the only author to ever to have a book named a Newbery Honor book the same year as receiving the Newbery Award for another book. The book that received the Newbery Honor but didn't win the same year that Mixed Up Files won. The title is A Series of Five Names. Two of those names are those of the protagonist and her new friend. But the other three are a Greek goddess associated with witchcraft and crossroads, an assassinated U.S. president, and a Shakespeare title character from a play that was at the center of some New York City riots in 1849. Uh, you can take a guess at all three if you want. If you get any of them right, you'll get 10 points, and I'll, I'll give you two bonus points for each additional correct answer. I don't, 
I don't recognize anything about riots. Uh, oh, okay, I definitely so covered it. I I, I know you did, ago. and I, I did not remember. So I think <laughs> I mean Macbeth came to mind, and so I I, I guess I do remember. It. Okay, so I'm gonna go with Macbeth for the Shakespeare. Okay. Uh, I uh, Hecate 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 Hecate. Okay. Hec- I, I know the, who you mean. Greek goddess. Um, Garfield. Yeah. Um, All right. I will give you 12 points. I didn't give you any clue on the president. I'm confident you would have guessed the right one if I'd given you anything besides assassinated U.S. president. Sure. But Macbeth is correct. The title of the work, is, uh, uh, Macbeth is correct, and Hecate, I don't know, uh, is correct. Yeah. The title of the work is Jennifer, Hecate, Macbeth, William McKinley, and Me, Elizabeth. Uh, <laughs> and that is a, it, it's a book about a young would-be witch and her new friend as she moves to a new town. Okay. Yeah, so you're at 42 points. (laughs) Not bad. Question five. Mixed Up Files was adapted into a feature film in 1973 titled The Hideaways, um, maybe from the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basilee Frankweiler was too long. Who played the titular character? If I told you her most famous role, it would be a dead giveaway. So instead, I will tell you that she won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for her role in the 1974 film Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, And she also starred in Gaslight and in the 1948 film Joan of Arc. Mm, I should know this. I I even, I remember I looked up the cast of gaslight when i was like all right where does this term actually come from uh oh i don't think i'm gonna get there i think i have to tap okay it's ingrid bergman ingrid bergman of course it is yes yeah um, yeah, so Ingrid Bergman starred as uh, Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. Um, later, there was a 1995 television film with Lauren Bacall in the title role. So I, I don't like th- that, this role yeah. apparently attracts like <laughs> big, names. <laughs> big names. Yes. All right. Well, you are at 42 points and our final category is national parks. Ooh, I've been to those. Uh, I'm gonna... mm, Yeah, I'm gonna bet it all. All Alright, for 84 points. From the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler was inspired by a picnic that E.L. Konigsberg had with her children in a national park where where the children vociferously complained about roughing it, and she found herself thinking that if they ever ran away from home, they would certainly choose to go to an elegant and refined destination, such as the Metropolitan Museum of Art. In which national park, the first in the U.S., did this picnic take place? There's a thing coming to mind, and I'm afraid that I'm thinking of the wrong one. I always freeze up on the first national park. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm overthinking it. My brain is like spinning it all around. Ooh. Um. Oh man, I God, this is gonna. This is okay. I'm gonna get this wrong. I that I'm so embarrassed that I this is just not the first imme- like the immediately first thing. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm gonna go with the Yellowstone. Yeah, Yellowstone's correct. Okay, because okay, I keep I, I there's a part of my brain that's like, no, it's the biggest. It can't be the first. And I'm just uh-huh. like, yeah, that. Did- mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and then there's also Devil's Tower, which is not a park. Mm-hmm. It's a national monument. 
Yes. The first of the national monuments. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, you got there eventually. Thank For you. 84 points, congratulations. E.L. Konigsberg recounts the origin of the novel saying, um, our family took a trip to Yellowstone Park. I decided that we should have a picnic in the park. After buying salami and bread, chocolate milk and paper cups, paper plates and napkins, potato chips and pickles, we got into the car and drove and drove but could not find a picnic table. So when we came to a clearing in the woods, I suggested that we eat there. We all crouched slightly above the ground and spread out our meal. Then the complaints began. The chocolate milk was getting warm and there were ants all over everything and the sun was melting the icing on the cupcakes. This was hardly roughing it and yet my small group could think of nothing but the discomfort. What, I wondered, would my children do if they ever decided to leave home? Where, I wondered, would they go? At the very least, they would want all the comforts of home, and they would probably want a few dashes of elegance as well. They they would (laughs) certainly never consider any place less elegant than the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And then I thought, while they were there, perhaps they could discover the secret of the mysterious bargain statue, and in, in doing so, they could also learn a much more important secret." how to be different on the inside where it counts. And that's that's where the novel comes from. So it uh, really comes, cool. comes out of a, uh, a picnic that was uh, not elegant enough for her children uh, in Yellowstone God. National Park. I can just, I can just imagine it. Um, children complaining. What? Never. Uh, never. No, not my children. No. Yeah. Well, with 84 points, you have done an outstanding job. So congratulations and well, thanks thank uh, for humoring me through this monster of a deep dive. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you listeners for spending your time with us. Uh, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you would be so kind. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who watch Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. And we will be back next week with... Well, without me. TBD guest host. uh, I'm figuring it out. We're figuring it out. Yep. With more Jeopardy and a deep dive and quiz. So until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.